Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to another edition of the Food Focus podcast with Trent and Leighton Kling. I want to thank all of our loyal listeners who tuned in last week through my vocal mishaps this week. Sure, to be much smoother as we discuss Del Taco having success in same restaurant sales. We'll also talk about Chipotle shelving one of their concepts as well as El Pollo Loco and a possible change atop their organization. But first we begin with a business that was on our list of the five poorest performing food related businesses in 2016 and that's Ruby Tuesday on Monday of this week, it was announced that the company is taking advising from UBS Financial to mull through options in terms of a possible sale of Ruby Tuesday. And I think the big question is, Leighton, we've talked so much about how much Ruby Tuesday has struggled. The question is, who might buy the chain? That's a very important question, one in which they're getting advice from the UBS Financial Group in order to decide what to do, either a partial sale of their assets or a full sale of their assets. But with this, they've announced a continuation of same-store sale declines. Also, preliminary results for their third quarter came in a little low, Trent. So the same-store sales losses for the third quarter came in negative 4% for the period ending February 28th. That loss is on top of declines the company had reported in August when revenue declined 5.9% due to less stores and same-store sales decreases. And this also, for the full fiscal year 2016, the restaurant saw same-store sales decline 3.7%. So when you ask who would want to buy this restaurant chain, that's an extremely valid question because here you have a restaurant chain that has decreased their store portfolio inside the United States and even their licensing units across in the international markets really haven't performed too well as of late. So we noted in December that they still had plenty of locations in their portfolio, 613. And we had mentioned that they could sell part of their real estate. They could spin off a REIT, perhaps something similar to what Red Lobster did to unlock value, at least short-term value for their remaining shareholders. As of March 2016, Ruby Tuesday owned, franchised, or licensed 729 Ruby Tuesday restaurants in 44 states and 13 foreign countries in Guam. You see that this number is down significantly. Again, 630 currently, so about 115 less restaurants they are operating. The stock trend is trading at all-time lows of around $1.73 a share. However, after hours upon this news, the shares popped around 19%. To put this into context, the company overall being that it is publicly held, we looked back and we saw that in late 2013, shares were trading around $9 a share. So just an absolute fall from grace, this company. And this isn't the first time they've actually looked to sell at least part of their business. In 2012, in April of 2012, they bought the Lime Fresh Mexican Grill for $24 million. And Immediately, just four years after, they ended up having to sell off 14 different locations to two different buyers and close an additional company-owned 11 restaurants. Upon selling this, Ruby Tuesday CEO said that there was still significant value in the chain, which has caused some to wonder why they would want to divest it then. This is eerily similar to what's happening now with these Ruby Tuesday restaurants, these namesake brand restaurants, and that they're still saying there's a lot of value to unlock with these restaurants, but one would wonder why are they not being able to manage these correctly if in fact they can find another operator to still have sustainable growth long term. They said in the press release associated with this announcement that they still felt like Ruby Tuesday was an iconic American brand. They mentioned the legacy that the restaurant has of 45 years. And they said, and I quote, we believe now is the right time to explore strategic alternatives that have the potential to position the business for long-term success and to carry that legacy forward. Well, why has the legacy fallen off of late? Well, we talked about the difficulty in terms of a lack of 
of direction for Ruby Tuesday. They've tried several times over the last four to five years to reestablish the company direction, but now it seems like they are really slipping in terms of gaining any traction with these rebranding efforts. They seem to be caught in between concepts. In their last Investor Day presentation, they mentioned that their target is 30 to 50-year-old females with families. And I'm paraphrasing in that circumstance. They went pretty in-depth as to who their target demographic is. But the problem is they're not quite sure exactly who they are marketing to. Are they a salad bar? Just earlier this year, they rolled out a new promotion that debuted an Endless Trip Garden Bar. They've always had a salad bar within their concept, but they debuted or re-debuted this garden bar with 55 total ingredients on it and promised customers endless trips. So maybe they're a salad bar. Are they a casual restaurant? They mentioned several times in their Investor Day presentation that they feel like they fit into the casual or even into the lower echelon of the high-end space. Are they a family-friendly restaurant? They mentioned trying to draw in families. So they're kind of caught in between concepts and you understand why maybe they're not retaining customers quite as much as they once were. And you look at the restaurants that are having success right now. You look at Darden Brand which I think is a great example of a restaurant chain or a series of restaurant chains that are having success. Olive Garden, their tactic is very clearly defined. They have a clearly defined promotional structure as well with their various variations of the never-ending pasta bowl, and they know exactly who their target market is. The same could be said of Longhorn Steakhouse or the other Darden Brands restaurants. But Ruby Tuesday, you don't see that same commitment to that single target customer. They seem to be a little bit more all over the place. And this was borne out in their most recent financial update that they sent out to shareholders. Their last quarter, which was the fiscal second quarter of 2017, saw just drastic declines across the board. Same restaurant sales declined 4.1%. And keep in mind, they were going against very soft comps. The previous second quarter of the prior fiscal year, they saw a 0.8% increase. So not exactly going against massively difficult comps there. They started hemorrhaging money quite a bit as their net loss showed $38 million or 63 cents per diluted share. That was compared to a net loss of $0.26 the prior year. So they continue to lose cash on that end. But one of the other more concerning things for me is the fact that their restaurant-level margin declined 410 basis points to 11.5%. That is a massive decline on restaurant-level margin and only adds to the negativity from some of the other numbers that were floating around. Now, their earnings per share numbers, once they cooked it in some non-GAAP measures, they looked a little bit better, but still, it's tough for a business to hide the fact that they're closing over 100 locations in the span of a year. They're hemorrhaging same-store sales. And what's more is they've closed all these locations, but these same restaurant sales are from locations that are, in theory, doing better than the ones that they closed or the ones that they closed to unlock real estate value from. So I think that's a danger sign for anyone that could be bidding potentially on purchasing Ruby Tuesday. And even though you saw the stock price pop by nearly 25% after this news came out following market close on Tuesday, you have to think that anyone looking to buy this chain may not have to do so at that much of a premium. Yeah, absolutely. And you hit it on the head when you talked about same store sales being soft. And this is actually including the 95 units that it announced back in late August when they said they were closing underperforming locations. You would think that underperforming locations would have negative same store sales of around double digit figures. Yet you see these figures come out, these preliminary third quarter figures, and they're in line with what they had seen during the second quarter results. So a lot of worrisome activity going on on the financial side for the business. You had mentioned the shrink margins also contributing to their loss you see that overall wages have been going up but food prices food inputs and other inputs have been steadily going down as we've been reporting the earnings from other like companies so i think there's a lot to look at for this company i think perhaps now is the time for another operator to come in maybe unlock some value perhaps they need to see something in this chain that the chain right now as far as the management is concerned is not really dealing with in a very appropriate manner you're seeing that they mention in a number of press releases pertaining to this potential sale that they've talked about their 45 year 
lifelong legacy in serving local communities with great American fare. That ties in perfectly to what we've been saying and that this is a lack of strategic direction and that you can't really be talking about the successes of the past. You have to be looking at the future. And this is something that the company has not done and not done for about four years now. And it is on them as far as their fiduciary duty to shareholders to look forward and in order to compete with the very competitive environment that they are in. They have to look at current trends and trend. They have to target segments of the market that they feel is going to grow the company the most. And they just have not done that. You had mentioned the salad bar. And then also a little bit of a differentiation between some of the high-end locations, some of the casual-based locations. Some locations have bars while others do not. So they really need to get their ducks in a row here. And I feel as though another company may come in and assess their portfolio and say that, you know, maybe two thirds of these locations are going to be growth drivers for the future while trying to divest the rest. And what's more is it seems to be interesting timing because they are in the midst of completing swaths of renovations throughout the country. And this is, again, something that they mentioned in their annual investor report that they were in the middle of undergoing store remodels, store refreshes, that type of thing, and building in larger salad bars within many of their restaurants. They just recently, as recently, in fact, as February, announced the completion of remodels in the Jacksonville, Florida area and the Charlotte, North Carolina area. Between those two areas, there are 13 stores wrapped up there, which is not a significant amount in terms of their overall store count. Still, one would believe that if their intent was to sell off to a bidder that was going to keep those restaurants open, that perhaps the fact that they've remodeled or refreshed a number of these locations might be a nice little bargaining chip for them. Now, on the other hand, these remodels don't really do anything as far as the real estate of the location because if they're going to simply close down the restaurants there and unlock the real estate for additional value, whether through a REIT or some other format, then the remodel really isn't going to do much good to the next business that comes in and occupies that location. Almost polar opposite of Ruby Tuesday's preliminary third quarter results, Del Taco reported same-store sales gains of 5.5% for their most recent quarter, also released some preliminary results for the first fiscal quarter of 2017, indicating a 4% bump in same-store sales. But again, fourth quarter results yielded 5.5% gains, representing strong operations given their highly competitive Mexican QSR segment that they operate in. This overall represents an 11.3% increase on a two-year basis. So if you look back two years ago, you see that those stores that have been open during this time have increased almost 12%. Del Taco achieved also very positive traffic comps in 12 of the 15 latest quarters. Total revenue came in for the quarter at $150.2 million, an increase of 12.6% over the fiscal fourth quarter 2015. The growth in revenue was driven by a 12.8% increase in company restaurant sales and a 9.7% increase in franchise revenue. Revenue streams for the company are in two forms as they have a mixed strategy encompassing both company-owned stores and franchising units. They're a little bit different than some other leading QSR companies that we've talked about and that they have a almost proportional mix between company-owned stores and franchising units. You'll see a company such as McDonald's have a very high rate of franchise stores. So right now they've been known to sell even already successful company-owned locations to existing franchisees in order to strengthen these long-term relationships. So really it's on a store-by-store basis is how they choose to either sell off to a franchisee or to keep it within their company portfolio. But for this latest period, you did see an extra week. They had 17 weeks versus 16 during last year's fourth quarter. Total revenue attributed to this additional operating week was only $8.3 million more. So even with Without this extra week, Trent, without this 17th week, they still would have had a positive comparable revenue increase. And the same store sales are a good sign for a company that sees a lot of white space in the United States as far as where they're going to grow. In fact, they claim to be the second largest Mexican quick service restaurant chain concept in the United States based on locations. If you're unfamiliar with Del Taco, and chances are good that especially if you live in the northeast or eastern portion of the United States or the upper Midwest, you're likely unfamiliar with Del Taco if you don't do a lot of 
of traveling. They are a regionalized chain. They are essentially well-known in California, Nevada, and Arizona. They have a few more locations in Utah and Colorado, but they haven't expanded too far east from there. They do have eight company-owned locations in Georgia and six franchise locations in Michigan, but really haven't expanded even into Texas. They have just one restaurant in all of Texas and three restaurants in Oklahoma to begin this year. Going back to look at their presentation that they gave at the ICR conference in January, you see a company that is very growth-centric. They want to grow not only on the same store sales metric, which and it's a great sign for them that they are continuing to do so. We'll talk about another Mexican QSR restaurant in a second that's kind of going the opposite direction with same store sales despite building out their store count. But they also see tremendous white space for growth across the United States. And in fact, as you look throughout the United States, there are many larger metro areas, maybe the Chicago metro area, uh, the St. Louis metro area, Nashville, Memphis, New York, of course, Boston, you can go on and on, that have yet to see a Del Taco within their vicinity. And even into portions of the Midwest where you think something like this might be pretty well received, they have not expanded in there. And it's tough to tell whether they're worried about competition from other Mexican QSRs like Taco Cabana, who we talked about about a month ago, on the podcast or Taco Bueno, which is also in the uh, lower Midwest or Midwest region and Taco John's, which is located in the Midwest. We don't know if they feel like competition is too fierce there or if they're just trying to take it slow as they move across the company. But the vast amount of company owned stores, which, by the way, they have 310 of those to franchise stores are in California and Nevada, with the franchise stores being located primarily not only in California, of course, as they have nearly 400 total units in California. Primarily, those franchise stores are operated in Utah, Colorado, and Arizona as well. All of these restaurants have an average unit volume of about 1.4 million. Goals are set for about 1.5 million in annual unit volumes by 2018. So you see that they're baking in significant same-store sales increases of mid-single digits. They do have 18 consecutive quarters of company-owned same-store sales growth in the back pocket. And this is kind of interesting for a business to have company stores that are way out in front of some of the franchise-owned stores. Most of the circumstances that we've seen in the QSR industry as a whole over the last year, you see greater growth oftentimes in franchisee-run stores, and this is for a variety of reasons across the board, but you see that it's the opposite with Del Taco, that their company-owned stores are actually having more success. And you have to like their concept because they're trying to fit themselves in a category they call QSR Plus, which is very similar to El Pollo Loco, which again, we'll talk about later on in the podcast. So they want to be sitting right between the QSR industry and the fast casual industry, sitting there as a differentiator. Now, the question is, will that subcategory continue to last as fast casual companies try to increase throughput and quick service companies try to increase the quality of their ingredients? So far, that QSR Plus strategy has worked well to give those average unit volumes a little bit of a boost. You said that they're over $1.4 million per unit currently, and I think that really plays into the food strategy that they've outlined. And during the earnings transcript, I was reading that the CEO was very bullish on the quality of their food, and they said that they really want the customers to feel like the freshness of their ingredients is going to separate them from their other competitors. We talked about a very crowded space when we're referring to the QSR space as it relates to Mexican cuisine, but they also talked about ingredient and product innovation. And then they said that despite all of this talk of quality and being able to differentiate between the high quality of ingredients compared to other QSRs, they still want to identify as a value offering. So they feel as though not only can they be what they call a QSR plus, but they also fit in nicely to the QSR industry as a whole. So they feel as though they can take pieces of both markets and add to those average unit volumes. And so I think that is their overarching strategy. And with that, you see a marketing focus to also outline some limited time offerings. They said they have some really good promotions coming up in February and March 
trying some things with shrimp, also trying some things they've done in the past with a turkey taco, and then the buck and under, which was actually featured in January. So this really plays into what they call the Fresh Combined Solutions, part of the marketing program for them in order to really tell the customers, hey, we have some new product offerings, but don't forget about the overarching quality of our food. They said they're planning new product news in every promotional window this year, supporting all of their sub branded food platforms like the Buck and Under and the Epic Burritos, which they have, and the Play-Dohs as well. So a lot to go through here, but overall, they said that this really has reciprocated in record customer service scores. They said experience and speed are the two main drivers for customer happiness, and I feel as though this is dead-on accurate because speed is the thing that everyone has been talking about, especially as of late. You're talking about throughput initiatives that have been created at Chipotle. We talk about the the Chipotle 2.0 mobile platform that's been rolled out. Del Taco has utilized a drive-through too, and most of their locations have seen this rolled out where they didn't have one before necessarily, and they also have implemented Wi-Fi in their locations. For those of you who want to utilize mobile ordering, they make this a bit easy, and they show on their website all of these locations that do have the drive-through and Wi-Fi access as well. They've been on a streak of much improved margins. Trent, you had spoken about the margins in our last story when referring to Ruby Tuesday, we see right now that they've had an increasing margin for the full year. They increased gross margins by 30 basis points to 21.5. Overall, if you look back to 2012, they've increased their margin by 340 basis points. Again, the direct opposite to what Ruby Tuesday has been doing as of late, but overall, very good quarter for Del Taco. Again, featured mostly on the West Coast. And they signed development opportunities to expand their West Coast presence in San Diego and Phoenix. I know we talked earlier about possibly expansion into the Midwest or the Southeast, but at the very least, San Diego and Phoenix, they're looking for further development where their brand already has a great presence. And they've identified 300 opportunities that exist in their present markets already, which would mean a 40% greater store footprint if they acted upon this long run. Now, for this last fiscal year, they did limit the number of openings. You look at 13 system-wide restaurants were open and two franchisee-run restaurants were closed. But again, despite the fact that we've talked so much about their expansion of concepts, their differentiation on ingredients, one of the areas in which I believe they're differentiating themselves is on this balance here in that QSR Plus category. And they made sure to mention this again in their ICR conference presentation and I have to give you full disclosure here although I don't own stock in Del Taco I am someone that considers myself a little bit of a Del Taco fan I don't currently live somewhere where there is a Del Taco but when I visit a city there is a Del Taco there I will eat there above other Mexican QSRs and where they differentiate themselves on their menu is by that balance not only do they see themselves as a value platform and they've long offered a grilled chicken taco for under a dollar. Currently, it's on their buck and under menu at one dollar. They have a number of other mini quesadillas, for example, or bean and rice burritos that are at lower price points as well. But they also attempt to endeavor into the higher price points, including with the epic burritos that Leighton mentioned, which are the mission-style burritos that Chipotle became very famous in marketing across the country. They've seen that Chipotle, Qdoba, and other chains have gotten famous surrounding this mission-style burrito, and they're Trying to jump in on that, only do it in a space that's a little bit quicker and moves people through the line a little bit faster. But they also have a line of classic burritos on the other side of that that come two for $5. So they have the value offerings. They have the platos or plateaus, depending on where you're at, as well as a higher-end offering, as well as some larger salads that you might find at maybe another fast-casual restaurant. So they're able to find this balance in their menu, which a lot of QSR Mexican restaurants really struggle with. I mentioned Taco Bueno earlier. They're beginning to kind of tilt a little bit more towards fast-casual, a little bit more towards the Chipotle-style food, if you will, whereas Taco John still is not differentiating themselves 
themselves on ingredients. They're closer towards the regular QSR industry. And then you have Taco Cabana, who, again, has begun to differentiate themselves on ingredients and larger plates. But typically, the average cost of a meal there, much more expensive than you would find at a Del Taco. So they're able to carve out this neat little niche in the Mexican QSR industry and put themselves apart. Despite all of this that we've just talked about, despite their strong numbers, their focused business approach, their different concepts and LTOs that they're bringing out that are driving traffic, shares are down about 3% after the earnings news. So perhaps investors were expecting something stronger than what they released. And now they're down 20% for the trailing three months. They're up only 2 to 3% over the course of the last year. And I think this is an interesting circumstance where you have maybe investor expectations. I don't know if they're set too high or if there's something there that maybe we're not seeing, but it seems like operationally they're having a lot of success where that's not reflected in the end stock price. Yeah, it really is a little curious because if you talk about the 300 opportunities they said they had in existing markets, you would suspect that the stock price would actually be an indicator of potential growth in the short to midterm. But I think that the fact that they are going into existing markets may be a little worrisome for some shareholders. However, I think it's a strategy that will work for the company. Management is very bullish on these opportunities and they've looked at the demographics so they know where they feel confident in and they said that these are what they consider are low risk areas. So anywhere they're already having a current facility, they're seeing opportunities in other areas of that city or county. And they're saying that, you know what, this is a risk worth taking because this is way different than going to an entirely new state, a new city. So I think this is a good strategy, at least for the short term, to kind of see how it plays out. And with that experience, they can then grow from there and potentially get into some new markets altogether. Well, we move from a Mexican QSR to a fast casual Mexican restaurant chain, only we're not talking about Chipotle this time, but about one of the concepts underneath Chipotle. The owner-operator of the Shophouse chain has decided to close all of their locations, which caught fans of the chain by surprise. They expressed a lot of sadness and frustration over the last few days on social media as they sent out last call messages, if you will. Now, Leighton, why don't you introduce Shophouse to us a little bit? Yeah, so it's a relatively new chain. Again, Chipotle is the owner-operator. It was first opened in 2011 in a neighborhood off of Washington, D.C., and it offered a customizable rice noodle and salad bowl. So it's a little similar to Chipotle in that you would stand in line and pick your different ingredients. But the food inspiration was actually drawn from parts of Vietnam, Malaysia, Singapore, and Thailand. And the chain overall now has 15 locations. They were growing, Trent. But however, Chipotle had announced back in October that they were going to cut off any future capital expenditures for the company. We talk about some close competition of Shophouse. We talk about Noodles and Company. And we talked about them on a recent episode of The Food Focus and that they're struggling to keep people coming into their restaurants. They're seeing declines in traffic. And like Chipotle, they do claim food with integrity, which is a theme that the company has been focused on. We talk about sustainable sourcing, natural ingredients, etc. All of their products, however, are not labeled non-GMO as with Chipotle. Some of their food has to be sourced from genetically modified sources, but all of the locations, again, 15 locations, will be closing this Friday, March 17th, a very soon closing from when they first announced this, and I think that's why that you see a lot of frustration and I think that's why you see a lot of frustration with their customer base because they were only given about a week to go into a shop house location and eat maybe one last time. But this was first reported by Nation's Restaurant News last Thursday. So a lot to talk about here because you see Chipotle is really trying to focus on their core concept, which is just that Chipotle. In this circumstance, I don't know how much of it can be tied back to the overall concept of Shop House or even to Chipotle, but I think a lot of this is stemming from overall softness in the concept. If we look back at Noodles and Company, and you mentioned we kind of talked about their earnings three months ago. Well, just recently, earlier this month, they came out with fourth quarter and fiscal year earnings. And although their revenue on the top line did increase, they still saw a pretty large-sized loss. And 
on a gap measure. It was a loss of 17 cents per diluted share. But I think if you go beyond just the overall top line or bottom line numbers, comparable restaurant sales for Noodles and Company decreased 1.3% system-wide, and that was across the board. It didn't matter whether it was a company-owned restaurant or a franchise-owned restaurant. Their sales decreased across the board for Noodles and Company, and we see the same type of thing developing here for Shophouse, and Chipotle has not been shy about trying out different concepts. You've talked before on the podcast about Pizzeria Locale, but in this circumstance, Shophouse just couldn't make a go of it in what is not only a pretty complex and crowded market, but is becoming increasingly a market that's struggling to see sales for a number of different reasons. But Chipotle did just open what they see as a Five Guys or Shake Shack competitor in Tasty Made in Ohio. That's seen mixed reviews, and they plan on trying other different concepts in the future. Chris Arnold, a spokesperson for Chipotle, said in an email to a news outlet that they just didn't believe that Shophouse warranted continued investment. They didn't see a huge amount of white space there. They didn't see a ton of future there for Shophouse. And when you're looking at earnings from companies that exist in similar market segments, it's no wonder why. Now, they haven't announced plans to wind down expansion in their other concepts, whether it be Tasty Made or Pizzeria Locale, which again, something we've talked about before on the show. Pizzeria Locale, you could make the argument, is in an even tougher space to make a go of it. And you see Pi 5 with massively negative same-store sales. However, that seems to be localized more to Pi 5 than other operators in the fast casual pizza industry. And we should also remember that Tasty Made, we don't really have basis for comparison there because they still only have one location. But I think a lot of bigger news outlets are looking and pointing at this and saying maybe Chipotle long-term will either slim down their focus on just the Chipotle chain or they see this as an indicator of other troubles at Chipotle. Yeah, and you had alluded to this. In fact, a lot of analysts were saying that this is potentially an intelligent decision long-term because Asian cuisine, in terms of the QSR market in the United States, is a very tiny fraction. You see that top chains in terms of sales are typically going to be pizza, burger, and Mexican segments, all of which now Chipotle has a hand in. We had mentioned Tasty Made with their one location competing in that burger segment. But granted, there is still room for these spaces to grow, but it is getting crowded long-term in QSR magazines, top 50 QSR brands in 2016. Panda Express, Trent, was the only Asian-based chain to make the list. They came in at number 22 out of that 50. But as reference, Del Taco made number 37 on that list, which is a relatively smaller Mexican QSR compared to, say, Taco Bell. So not a lot to look forward to. You're seeing growth prospects fairly diminished for this particular industry. We've already mentioned two chains in that industry really struggling to make ends meet. And I think if you look a little deeper at what went wrong, I think there's a lot to be said for the activist investors that had a big hand at Chipotle at the beginning of 2016. They're really steering the company in that more focused direction that we've alluded to. We've talked about the traditional marketing techniques and streamlining some of their other operations inside the food service area. But you look at Shop House and this concept was arguably without economies of scale and that little ingredients were also used with Chipotle. So you could have a shop house right next to a Chipotle, but you're most likely going to be hamstrung a little bit on the buying side because only things like the paper products and kitchen supplies can be used in both of the restaurants. But a lot of these ingredients, a lot of the cooking oils and things of that nature that shop house were utilizing, not at all touching any Chipotle locations or pizzeria locale locations for that matter. Customers also keeping those customers were an issue. Chipotle chairman and CEO Steve L said that the concept was not able to attract sufficient customer loyalty and visit frequency to make it a viable growth strategy. And with Chipotle, you see that this is their number one strategy is keeping customers coming in. They recognize that 85% of returning customers are going to be your most valuable customers long term. So I think with this concept of Chop House, you're seeing that the customers really weren't aware of it. They didn't do really a lot of marketing around it. And because of that, you didn't get customers coming in, at least for their first visit. And you definitely didn't retain customers because you weren't very clear on the product offering to begin with. 
communication was definitely a theme as they announced this. And one of the things that was noted when Shophouse first opened up in the U.S. was that the food was seen by many as prohibitively spicy. And they mentioned perhaps a failure in communication to kind of communicate what the food was, how it was to be eaten, and maybe if people were ordering things that were prohibitively spicy out of the gate. And I I liken it kind of to someone's first visit to a Thai restaurant where you're oftentimes choosing how spicy the dish is made. Sometimes if that communication isn't there either through menu sources or otherwise opening up a line of communication between the customer and the person that's taking the order or the person that's producing the food, you can be in for an unwanted surprise and that will also decrease the amount of return traffic overall shop house they decided to just cut bait on it rather than sell off the chain as Leighton mentioned because of a number of issues with that seems to have a lot of fans on social media but again the fans that they did have weren't enough to justify keeping all 15 locations in the chain open and one final note on the story about shop house the biggest beneficiary from the fact that chipotle closed down or has decided to close down the chain might be noodles and company who we mentioned earlier as their stock popped from around three dollars and 55 cents a share to four dollars and 10 cents a share after the announcement was made so a remarkable increase in share price of about 12 percent for noodles and company based on chipotle abandoning this concept We move on to our last story, another Mexican QSR and El Pollo Loco as they release their earnings that are somewhat of a disappointment. And then also on an unrelated note, potentially their CEO has announced his intention to retire by the end of the year this year. Earnings for the fourth quarter fiscal year 2016 were released with their full year 2016 results. And we begin with the financial highlights. Total revenue did grow 7.2% to $92.5 million versus the $86.3 million in the prior year's quarter. We should note that their overall sales volume is well shy of Del Taco, as noted previously. And honestly, this is a chain that is looking to establish themselves like a Del Taco. They've been expanding rapidly throughout the country. Total revenue grew as a function of new store openings as a result of this, which they had 29 new store openings compared to the fourth quarter in fiscal year 2015. Net income was just barely positive, representing an earnings per share mark of just one cent. And honestly, Trent, there's a lot more to dig in here as they noted that this net income declined on a pre-tax impairment charge of seven restaurants based on the assets worth. And they also had a non-gap basis earnings per share of about $4.6 million or 12 cents per share, meaning that they had a lot of impairment charges this quarter. And I bet a lot of shareholders are curious as to see whether this is going to happen in future quarters throughout 2017. Yeah, it's so tough to tell from the non-GAAP numbers exactly how successful a company has become or is being. But full-year highlights for the company, as they did announce full-year numbers, did include an overall top-line revenue increase of 7.1%, driven only partially by new store openings in this case, unlike the fourth quarter where top-line revenue growth was driven completely by new store openings because comps for the full year did increase just shy of 1%. 0.9%. You saw a 0.6 increase with company-owned restaurants and 1.1% increases in same restaurant comps for franchised restaurants. This is much more in line with what we see in the QSR and the fast service restaurant industries as well as the fast casual industries where you have franchise stores often outperforming company-owned stores, and it seems to be the case of about four out of every five companies that we talk about on the podcast, Del Taco, who we talked about earlier, being one of the rare exceptions to that rule. We'll talk about the not-so-positive aspects of this release here in just a moment, but first, again, El Pollo Loco is a very regionalized company, and if you're not from California or Arizona or Texas or Nevada, you're not likely to know exactly who they are, but they specialize in chicken, the grill on a fire-based grill that is actually visible oftentimes from the ordering platform. They, just like Del Taco, consider themselves to be in that QSR Plus subsector there. The biggest thing is they try to be as open as possible about preparing their chicken. Everything is grilled. 
nothing at El Pollo Loco is fried. And because of that, they try to differentiate themselves not only on the ingredient front, but also on the health front. Because of that, you see average ticket prices be a little bit higher than many of the other restaurants that exist in the QSR Plus industry, even Del Taco. And El Pollo Loco, it's kind of funny, in their latest investor presentation, this was back in January, they see them existing basically by themselves in this QSR Plus industry, where Del Taco sees the same thing. They feel like they exist by themselves in the QSR Plus industry. Obviously, these two restaurants are competing with one another, but they're competing in different aspects because El Pollo Loco does sell whole chicken, so it's not just wrapping things up in, in burritos and serving bowls and all of that. To give you an idea as to their price point, a typical chicken avocado burrito there will cost around $6. Salads, bowls also cost around $6. So they pride themselves on a price point that is less than Chipotle, but at the same time, their price point will be more than a Del Taco, a Taco Bell, or a Taco Bueno. Still, they're seeing marginal growth in terms of same restaurant sales. Despite that, their fourth quarter comparable restaurant sales did go down. They went down 1.3%, which is a substantial fall off from prior quarters. And in fact, they've been bragging about of late a lot of increases across company-owned or company-operated restaurant revenue and top-line revenue increasing year after year there. That's not what we see in this last quarter. Actually, now company-owned restaurants are falling less in this metric than some of the franchise restaurants are. It's 0.6% of a fall during the last quarter to 1.9% for their franchise restaurants. One of the things that they are blaming is the rainy winter weather in California, and we see weather used as a blame oftentimes for companies not only in retail but also the restaurant industry. But I think more to the point, their rapid expansion certainly seems to have cut into their bottom line results and the amount of cash they have flowing in and out on a regular basis. And they saw a significant downturn on a gap basis towards unprofitability. Now, they were still profitable by the slightest of margins. But what we do know is because they're opening all of these new stores, we also know that comparable store sales are shrinking. This tells us that expenditures above and beyond just impairments are outpacing revenue from their new locations. And because the new locations aren't appearing to be paying themselves off at a strong enough speed, there is some concern as to whether or not they can keep up their expansion plans. They expanded more than Del Taco did during the last calendar year, and it might be wise of them maybe to hold off on further expansion. As they mentioned, a lot of white space in the country just like Del Taco did, but at the same time, they may not have the resources to jump into that empty space. And this may be one of the reasons why the company is looking to continue their marketing efforts and actually extend them. So they're looking to spend a little bit more money on telling people about their brand and their message. They said they want to tell a story about their brand. And this means a conveyance of how they prepare the food. Trent, you had mentioned the methodology in which they cook their chicken. And then also the history of their recipes. They have a deep history in Mexican culture and the relative healthfulness of their menu offerings. Again, they see themselves as a QSR Plus just just like Del Taco. So they're really trying to offer some healthy alternatives, maybe some alternatives you wouldn't see in a typical Mexican QSR. And they also want to showcase some of their tenured grill masters. They said that this was actually the one big bright spot for them is their personnel in which some of the people, some of the grill masters that have been with the company have been with the company between 20 and 30 years. In fact, they mentioned one during the earnings release that has been with the company for about 32 years. And so they've started a new ad campaign. And Part of this ties in with their collaboration between them and ad agency and ad agency Vitro, which is actually based in San Diego, so not far from the headquarters here. But it's called Road to Authenticity, and they really want to communicate a message to their customers that their food is authentic and their message is authentic. And so they want to enlighten customers also about their new mobile ordering platform, not just the quality in their food or those limited time offerings, but they want to drive convenience and loyalty. So they want to do all of these things in one. That really is the overarching message in the Road to Authenticity rollout. I think loyalty has shown to be very valuable in terms of of ease of purchase. You're talking about a lot of mobile platforms being rolled out and you're seeing customer retention rates increase as a result of that, something we've talked about in the Mexican QSR industry where the best mobile app typically wins out and you see 
dozens of iterations of the mobile app when you're talking about a chain that's been dominating in Domino's. So I think there's a lot to gain there for this restaurant, but right now it looks like the soft same store sales just aren't going to cut it as far as their sustainable growth plans are concerned. And a couple of quick notes before we move on to the retirement of their CEO. They are launching third-party delivery in this first quarter of 2017, and they're looking towards introduction of a loyalty program in the second quarter of 2017 and potentially self-service kiosks by the year end of 2017. So some technology innovations in the works for El Pollo Loco above and beyond the online order and mobile apps that they're rolling out. Additionally, they're not just resting on their same-store sales decline lines. And I think one of the interesting developments for El Pollo Loco is that they are in the process of rolling out a new protein in beef barbacoa, anxious to see where that takes the chain or if that erodes some of the authenticity because they had centered so much of what they do around chicken. They also plan on offering other new products, including under 500 calorie lettuce tacos and overstuffed chicken quesadillas that bear a strong resemblance to a crunch wrap or a crunch wrap supreme at Taco Bell. So let's talk a little bit about their CEO retirement. It was announced during the earnings call or the same day of the earnings call, I should say, that Steve Sather, who has been with the company since 2006 and has been CEO for seven of those 11 years, is stepping aside. He's seeking to retire by December 31st of this year. Now, it's unsure as to when exactly he'll be stepping down as the company has enlisted executive search consultant Corn Ferry to help find a new CEO. If they find a new CEO sooner rather than later, then, of course, Sather will step down sooner rather than later. But Sather has seen massive growth with the company, and he played an integral part in their IPO during July of 2014, so they haven't been public for too long. The company went public in order to use the funds to pay down their debt, which also had an immense interest payment there. They also wanted to use some of the funds to grow out their total store location, and they've been able to do that just enough over the past three years. In a securities filing on Thursday in Costa Mesa, California, El Pollo Loco said that Sather's retirement was and I quote, solely due to personal reasons and not because of any disagreement with the company, although there were some rumblings based on their perhaps less than optimal earnings call that they had on that same day. But it appears Sather is leaving the company on good terms. And quite honestly, when you look at his tenure at the company, he oversaw a massive amount of growth for El Pollo Loco. And I don't think it's stretching the truth to say that they are in a better position now than when he took over as CEO seven years ago. Yeah, and they really have followed through with those growth plans. You had mentioned their IPO in July of 2014. He, at the time, was overseeing a company that had 400 locations, and he saw the runway growth for 1,900 more, so 2,300 restaurants in total, and they're well on the way to achieving that. So that profitability measure is something they're going to have to look at going forward as a new CEO is looking to take the place of Steve Sather. But if you look at his experience in both the QSR industry and the food industry, in general, you see that he was a franchising operator at Krispy Kreme Donuts in Southern California, and he was the chief operating officer at Rubio's Restaurants, which is actually the restaurant group that had bought Lime Fresh Mexican Grill from Ruby Tuesday. So he's seen a lot of action in the industry, and I think that he has a breadth of experience. And if you look at his age, he's 69 years of age, he's probably ready to retire. And with that comes him leaving the board post as well. So that's neither common or uncommon when a CEO of his tenure leaves that position. So I think overall, if you look at the other management ranks, I think the company's in good hands and we wish him well in retirement through any active or passive future endeavors as well. Well, we reached the point in the Food Focus podcast where each Leighton and I detail a product that's new to the world of food or beverage that we tried during the last week. And as always, Leighton, we begin with you. So this product isn't new to the market, but it's new to me, Trent. It's another potato chip, this in Kettle. A lot of our listeners probably are aware of the Kettle brand, which has grown exponentially in the last two to three years. This was a country-style barbecue chip, and it caught my attention because it's an organic chip. Not all of the Kettle chips are organic, but most are natural. You see with that comes zero grams trans fats, no preservatives, they're gluten-free chips, and they're non-GMO. And so I think this really is a chip that is worth looking into if you like something delicious and something that still carries that barbecue flavor like a Lay's potato chip, something a little more conventional, but comes with those organic ingredients. And then if you look at that ingredient list, you note 
that everything is indeed organic. You see that organic potatoes is the number one ingredient, which should always be the number one ingredient when you're looking at potato chips. And then all of the oil, they use safflower and sunflower oil, and they also use organic tomato powder and onion powder. So everything that's in here is really good, and it really produced a very strong natural flavor for me. And this is a chip that I'm going to be buying again. Typically, when I look to buy something like this, it's on sale, and this was no exception. It was on sale about a dollar off. Typically, you can get a smaller bag of these, a five-ounce bag, for around the $3.50 price point. Right now, I'm looking online, and you see bags as cheap as $3.00 and some upwards of four, but overall, very good chip if you're into this kind of thing. Uh, a barbecue chip that competes on price and competes on quality, so this is definitely going to be a repurchase of mine going forward. Well, at my grocery store here locally, they rolled out a promotional four-way pallet of a new product from V8, and this is V8 Plus Energy. Now, they've had this product around for quite some time. The difference with the product that I tried, it is the first in the line, or the first series in the line, to have light carbonation. They have three different versions of the V8 Plus Energy lightly carbonated. One is white grape raspberry, another is orange pineapple, and the third is blackberry cranberry. I tried the white grape raspberry. The lead ingredient in this is actually water, followed up by sweet potato juice concentrate. It's got about 33% to 34% juice depending on the variety that you try out. Each 12-ounce can has 50 calories in it, and it comes in 12-ounce single cans and 12-ounce four-packs. Now, the MSRP of the can I bought was $2. However, I did get it on special for about $1.30, and I tend to like many of the offerings from the V8 Energy line. I typically get the 48 to 64-ounce bottles. This is the first time I had tried a carbonated version in the can as it hadn't been out for that long. It's got 80 milligrams of caffeine per 12-ounce serving due to the addition of green tea and a number of the other antioxidants there. It's also got vitamins ranging from thiamine and niacin to vitamin C, which has 20% of the daily value of. Given the overall nutritional profile of this drink and the fact that a 12-ounce can has one combined serving of fruit and vegetables, I did think that the product was okay. I don't know that it's better than the uncarbonated version of the same V8 Plus Energy drink. And honestly, I thought it was maybe a little bit sweeter than I had been expecting. Maybe the white grape juice put it up over the top. It's not unlike V8 to use sweet potatoes and purple carrots to make things a little bit sweeter on the whole and to build out the vegetable profile. But again, especially at the $2 price point, I don't know that I'm going to be going back to this option. And I think I'm going to stick with my regular V8 plus energy offerings. But again, that was the V8 plus energy white grape raspberry lightly carbonated version that has just been rolled out to grocers in the last month. Well, that'll do it for us on the Food Focus podcast. For Leighton, I'm Trent. Check us out on Twitter at The Food Focus, where we'll be tweeting out all the nation's restaurant news as well as the grocery news and beverage news from those different industries. And check out Retail Focus on Friday, where we profile what a sporting goods retailer is doing with their shoe section. This has been the Food Focus podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. 